0: Asbestos is a wonder substance that's resistant to heat, fire, and corrosion. It's used in the brakes and clutches of cars and in insulation and other building materials. Skyscrapers, offices, public housing projects, single-family homes, and schools built especially before the 1980s contain asbestos. A few years ago, I had to work from home for several months during the renovation of the building where I do my weekday job. The building badly needed asbestos remediation, and it wasn't safe to enter for a while. Unfortunately, the wonder substance asbestos happens to scar the lungs and cause cancer. Construction workers who did their jobs before the dangers of asbestos were fully known or when those dangers were deliberately concealed or who didn't receive protections from this workplace hazard often died of exposure to asbestos years after, spending time building much of the country we live in today. Asbestos also happens to come from the Greek word used in today's gospel to describe the fire of God's judgment, which apparently is also something that doesn't burn out easily. When the crowds coming to John for baptism wonder whether John might be the Messiah, he explains that he baptizes only with water. Someone more powerful than he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This coming judge would appear with winnowing fork in hand to separate the wheat from the chaff, gather the wheat into his barn, and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That word for unquenchable is asbestos, something resistant to burning up, Or burning out. John the Baptist's fiery preaching is terrifying. The axe at the root of the tree appears to demand literally radical change from this world. The winnowing fork suggests that entering the kingdom is an either-or proposition. Either you're in with the wheat or out with the chaff. But as happens, sometimes, John's tone shifts a bit when the crowds press him to get a little more pragmatic. They ask, what then should we do? John's answers aren't necessarily all that radical. To start, people with more than they need should reallocate their extra clothing and food to people without enough. Sounds pretty basic. John faces a tougher test case when not just generic crowds press him, but even tax collectors. What on earth should tax collectors do to survive the calming judgment? John advises them just to take no more in taxes than prescribed. That is, they shouldn't use their positions to line their pockets possibly posing an even greater challenge to John. The gospel tells us that even soldiers came to ask about the implications of the kingdom for them. John tells them not to extort or bring false charges against people. That is, they just shouldn't abuse their power. For all the talk among many Christians over the years about the stark opposition between the kingdom of God on the one hand and the Roman Empire on the other, John's advice here isn't all that different from the reforms of Caesar Augustus himself. Savvy emperors know in all times and places that fairly administered government fees and well-disciplined armies and the elimination of bribes and abuses of power are keys to building a lasting kingdom. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, too, reinforces the message that practicing the kingdom of God is even for agents of imperial Rome, even for tax collectors, even for soldiers, and so even for you, even for me. Jesus also sometimes repeats the threat of unquenchable fire. Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, only found in Luke's gospel, echoes John the Baptist's warning today that people's status as ancestors of Abraham won't be enough to save them from fire, but sharing food and clothing might. The rich man in Jesus' parable has clothes made of purple and fine linen, and he eats sumptuous daily meals. The poor man, Lazarus, longs for crumbs from this man's table, and the sores on Lazarus's body imply that he doesn't have enough clothing. In the afterlife, though, Lazarus gets to rest in the bosom of Abraham, the rich man who withheld precisely those things that John called on people to share, that is clothing and food this man ended up tormented in flames in the story. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, also found only in Luke's gospel, reinforces as well and directly echoes John's preaching. An expert of biblical law presses Jesus to get practical by asking the same question that the crowds, tax collectors, and soldiers asked in today's gospel of John. What should we do. Jesus then tells the man the story of a Samaritan helping a wounded Jewish man, and Jesus ends with words identical to John the Baptist at the end of today's reading, do likewise. Jesus's audience saw Samaritans as aggressors, not vulnerable outcasts, so the message was surprising. Even Samaritans can do what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. So for all the unquenchable fire, the message of John and Jesus in Luke's gospel isn't that the kingdom of God will be entered and practiced only by the pure. In fact, the kingdom can be practiced even by people the crowds thought of as bullies, even agents of taxation and state violence, even aggressors like the Samaritans, If even they can enter the kingdom, maybe even we can too. There are several ways to deal with our world's asbestos problems. We can tightly seal our walls and ceilings from asbestos leaks and just carry on with the new urgent tasks of working and living in those buildings no matter how they were made decades ago. We could do the expensive and dangerous work of asbestos remediation when those buildings desperately need renovation. Or we could tear them down and build something asbestos free. The news that the kingdom of God is at hand presents us with similar choices. What should we renovate? What should we tear down completely? And when should we just inhabit the structures we've inherited and do what we can to make them more fair? Many of us inhabit structures of all kinds, built from labor practices that exploited human strengths and cut short human lives. What to do about all that asbestos? And how should those whose jobs expose them to hazards that most of us don't have to face on a regular basis, how and when should they be judged? As terrifying as the judgment of unquenchable fire may sound at first, I find hope in the fact that even the judgment proclaimed by John the Baptist takes place between each one of us and our God. God knows how and why each of us responds to the call to repentance and to the good news of the kingdom in the particular way that we do. In middle age, I find that I more typically fear the judgment of my peers. It's a bit more frightening for choosing the wrong answer or the wrong approach, for sometimes being too radical and sometimes not being radical enough. I also fear that there's less time in today's world for any of us to grow and learn and change before the axe of condemnation suddenly drops. But I find comfort that even when John the Baptist, the fiery preacher of repentance, was asked whether he was the Messiah, he made it instantly clear that he was not the ruler, the savior, or the judge of the world— So the only audience for our own idiosyncratic performances of the kingdom isn't John the Baptist or public opinion, but the Lord who knows us through and through and who meets us where we are and who assures us that the kingdom is for us, even us.